Chapter forty two, part five of Leviathan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes. Chapter forty two, part five of Power Ecclesiastical. Though this that I have here said, and in other places of this book, seem clear enough for the asserting of the supreme ecclesiastical power to Christian sovereigns, yet, because the Pope of Rome's challenge to that power universally hath been maintained chiefly, and I think as strongly as is possible, by Cardinal Bellarmine, in his controversy De Sumo Pontifis, I have thought it necessary, as briefly as I can, to examine the grounds and strength of his discourse. Of five books he hath written of this subject, the first containeth three questions. One, which is simply the best government, monarchy, aristocracy, or democracy, and concludeth for neither, but for a government mixed of all three. Another, which of these is the best government of the church, and concludeth for the mixed, but which should most participate of monarchy? The third. Whether in this mixed monarchy St. Peter had the place of monarch? Concerning his first conclusion, I have already sufficiently proved, chapter 18, that all governments, which men are bound to obey, are simple and absolute. In monarchy there is but one man supreme, and all other men that have any kind of power in the state have it by his commission, during his pleasure, and execute it in his name, and in aristocracy and democracy, but one supreme assembly, with the same power that in monarchy belongeth to the monarch, which is not mixed, but an absolute sovereignty. And of the three sorts, which is the best, is not to be disputed, where any one of them is already established, but the present ought always to be preferred, maintained, and accounted best, because it is against both the law of nature and the divine positive law to do anything tending to the subversion thereof. Besides, it maketh nothing to the power of any pastor, unless he have the civil sovereignty, what kind of government is the best, because their calling is not to govern men by commandment, but to teach them, and persuade them by arguments, and leave it to them to consider whether they shall embrace or reject the doctrine taught. For monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy do mark out unto us three sorts of sovereigns, not of pastors, or, as we may say, three sorts of masters of families, not three sorts of schoolmasters for their children. And therefore the second conclusion, concerning the best form of government of the church, is nothing to the question of the Pope's power without his own dominions, for in all commonwealths his power if he have any at all, is that of the schoolmaster only, and not of the master of the family. For the third conclusion, which is that St. Peter was monarch of the church, he bringeth forth his chief argument, the place of St. Matthew. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, etc. And I will give thee the keys of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew, 
chapter 16, verses 18, 19, which place, well considered, proveth no more but that the church of Christ hath for foundation only one article, namely, that which Peter, in the name of all the apostles professing, gave occasion to our Saviour to speak the words here cited. Which that we may clearly understand, we are to consider, that our Saviour preached by himself, by John Baptist, and by his apostles, nothing but this article of faith, that he was the Christ. All other articles requiring faith no otherwise than as founded on that. John began first, preaching only this, the kingdom of God is at hand, Ibid, chapter 3, verse 2. Then our Saviour himself preached the same, Matthew, chapter 4, verse 17. And to his twelve apostles, when he gave them their commission, there is no mention of preaching any other article but that, Ibid, chapter 10, verse 7. This was the fundamental article, that is the foundation of the church's faith. Afterwards the apostles being returned to him, he asketh them all, not Peter only, who men said he was, and they answered that some said he was John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Ibid, chapter 16, verse 13. Then he asked them all again, not Peter only, whom say ye that I am? Ibid, chapter 16, verse 15. Therefore St. Peter answered for them all, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God, which I said is the foundation of faith of the whole church, from which our Saviour takes the occasion of saying, Upon this stone I will build my church, by which it is manifest that by the foundation stone of the church was meant the fundamental article of the church's faith. But why then, will some object, doth our Saviour interpose these words, Thou art Peter. If the original of this text had been rigidly, the reason would easily have appeared. We are therefore to consider that the Apostle Simon was surnamed Stone, which is the signification of the Syriac word Cephas, and of the Greek word Petrus. Our Saviour, therefore, after the confession of that fundamental article alluding to his name, said, as if it were in English, thus, Thou art stone, and upon this stone I will build my church. Which is as much to say, This article, that I am the Christ, is the foundation of all the faith I require in those that are to be members of my church. Neither is this allusion to a name an unusual thing in common speech, but it had been a strange and obscure speech if our Saviour, intending to build his church on the person of St. Peter, had said, Thou art a stone, and upon this stone I will build my church, when it was so obvious, without ambiguity, to have said, I will build my church on thee. And yet there had been still the same allusion to his name. And for the following words, I will give thee the keys of heaven, etc., it is no more than what our Saviour gave also to all the rest of his disciples. Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew chapter 18 verse 18 But howsoever this be interpreted, there is no doubt but the power here granted belongs to all supreme pastors, such 
as are all Christian civil sovereigns in their own dominions, insomuch as if St. Peter or our Saviour himself had converted any of them to believe him and to acknowledge his kingdom, yet because his kingdom is not of this world, he had left the supreme care of converting his subjects to none but him, or else he must have deprived him of the sovereignty to which the right of teaching is inseparably annexed. And thus, much in refutation of his first book, wherein he would prove St. Peter to have been the monarch universal of the church, that is to say, of all the Christians in the world. The second book hath two conclusions. One, that St. Peter was bishop of Rome, and there died. The other, that the popes of Rome are his successors, both which have been disputed by others. But supposing them true, yet if by bishop of Rome be understood either the monarch of the church, or the supreme pastor of it, not Sylvester, but Constantine, who was the first Christian emperor, was that bishop. And as Constantine, so all other Christian emperors were of right supreme bishops of the Roman Empire. I say, of the Roman Empire, not of all Christendom, for other Christian sovereigns had the same right in their several territories, as to an office essentially adherent to their sovereignty, which shall serve for answer to his second book. In the third book he handleth the question whether the Pope be Antichrist. For my part I see no argument that proves he is so. In that sense the scripture useth the name. Nor will I take any argument from the quality of Antichrist to contradict the authority he exerciseth, or hath heretofore exercised, in the dominion of any other prince or state. It is evident that the prophets of the Old Testament foretold, and the Jews expected, a Messiah, that is, a Christ, that should re-establish amongst them the kingdom of God, which had been rejected by them in the time of Samuel, when they required a king after the manner of other nations. This expectation of theirs made them obnoxious to the imposture of all such as had both the ambition to attempt the attaining of the kingdom, and the art to deceive the people by counterfeit miracles, by hypocritical life, or by orations and doctrine plausible. Our Saviour, therefore, and his apostles, forewarned men of false prophets and of false Christs. False Christs are such as pretend to be the Christ, but are not, and are called properly Antichrists, in such sense as when there happeneth a schism in the church by the election of two popes, the one the one calleth the other Antipapa, or the false pope. And therefore Antichrist, in the proper signification, hath two essential marks, one, that he denieth Jesus to be Christ, and another, that he professeth himself to be Christ. The first mark is set down by St. John, in his first epistle, 4, verse 3. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of Antichrist. The other mark is expressed in the words of our Saviour. Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. Matthew chapter 24, verse 5. And again, If any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, there is Christ, believe it not. And therefore Antichrist must be a false Christ, that is, 
some one of them that shall pretend themselves to be Christ. And out of these two marks, to deny Jesus to be the Christ, and to affirm himself to be the Christ, it followeth that he must also be an adversary of Jesus, the true Christ, which is another usual signification of the word Antichrist. But of these many Antichrists there is one special one, O Antichristos, the Antichrist, or Antichrist definitely, as one certain person, not indefinitely an Antichrist. Now seeing the Pope of Rome neither pretendeth himself, nor denieth Jesus to be the Christ, I perceive not how he can be called Antichrist, by which word is not meant one that falsely pretendeth to be his lieutenant, or vicar-general, but to be he. There is also some mark of the time of this special Antichrist, and when that abominable destroyer spoken of by Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, shall stand in the holy place, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, in such tribulation as was not since the beginning of the world, nor ever shall be again, insomuch as if it were to last long, no flesh could be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Ibid, chapter 24, verse 22. Made fewer. But that tribulation is not yet come, for it is to be followed immediately by a darkening of the sun and moon, a falling of the stars, a concussion of the heavens, and the glorious coming again of our Saviour in the clouds. Ibid, chapter 24, verse 29. And therefore the Antichrist is not yet come, whereas many popes are both come and gone. It is true, the Pope, in taking upon him to give laws to all Christian kings and nations, usurpeth a kingdom in this world, which Christ took not on him, but he doth it not as Christ, but as for Christ, wherein there is nothing of the Antichrist. In the fourth book, to prove the Pope to be the supreme judge in all questions of faith and manners, which is as much as to be the absolute monarch of all Christians in the world, he bringeth three propositions. The first, that his judgments are infallible. The second, that he can make very laws, and punish those that observe them not. The third, that our Saviour conferred all jurisdiction ecclesiastical on the Pope of Rome. For the infallibility of his judgments, he alleges the scriptures. The first, that of Luke, chapter 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. This according to Bellarmine's exposition, is that Christ gave here to Simon Peter two privileges, one, that neither his faith should fail, nor the faith of any of his successors, the other, that neither he nor any of his successors should ever define any point concerning faith or matters erroneously, or contrary to the definition of a former pope, which is a strange and very much strained interpretation. But he that with attention readeth that chapter, shall find there is no place in the whole scripture that maketh more against the Pope's authority than this very place. The priests and scribes, seeking to kill our Saviour at the Passover, and Judas possessed with a resolution to betray him, and the day of killing the Passover being come, our Saviour celebrated the same with his apostles, which he said, till the kingdom of God was come, he would do no more. 
and withal told them that one of them was to betray him. Hereupon they questioned which of them it should be, and withal seeing the next Passover their master should celebrate should be when he was king, entered into a contention who should then be the greatest man. Our Saviour therefore told them that the kings of the nations had dominion over their subjects, and are called by a name in Hebrew that signifies bountiful. But I cannot be so to you. You must endeavour to serve one another. I ordain you a kingdom, but it is such as my father hath ordained me, a kingdom that I am now to purchase with my blood, and not to possess till my second coming. Then ye shall eat and drink at my table, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then addressing himself to St. Peter, he saith, Simon, Simon, Satan seeks, by suggesting a present domination, to weaken your faith of the future. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith shall not fail. Thou therefore note this, being converted, and understanding my kingdom as of another world, confirm the same faith in thy brethren. To which St. Peter answered, as one that no more expected any authority in this world, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, not only to prison, but to death. Whereby it is manifest, St. Peter had not only no jurisdiction given him in this world, but a charge to teach all the other apostles that they also should have none. And for the infallibility of St. Peter's sentence, definitive in matter of faith, there is no more to be attributed to it out of this text than that Peter should continue in the belief of this point, namely, that Christ should come again and possess the kingdom at the day of judgment, which was not given by this text to all his successors, for we see they claim it in the world that now is. The second place is that of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. By which, as I have already shown in this chapter, is proved no more than that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the confession of Peter, which gave occasion to that speech, namely this, that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. The third text is John, chapter 21, verses 16 and 17. Feed my sheep which contains no more but a commission of teaching, and if we grant the rest of the apostles to be contained in that name of sheep, then it is the supreme power of teaching, but it was only for the time that there were no Christian sovereigns already possessed of that supremacy. But I have already proved that Christian sovereigns are in their own dominions the supreme pastors, and instituted thereto by virtue of their being baptized, though without other imposition of hands. For such imposition, being a ceremony of designing the person, is needless when he is already designed to the power of teaching what doctrine he will, by his institution to an absolute power over his subjects. For, as I have proved before, sovereigns are supreme teachers, in general, by their office, and therefore oblige themselves, by their baptism, to teach the doctrine of Christ. And when they suffer others to teach their people, they do it at the peril of their own souls, for it is at the hands of the heads of families that God will require the account of the instruction of his children and servants. It is of Abraham himself, not of a hireling, that God saith, I know him that he will command his children, and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, and do justice and judgment. Genesis chapter 18 verse 19. 
The fourth place is that of Exodus, chapter 28, verse 30. Thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the urim in thummim, which he saith is interpreted by the Septuagint, delosin kai aletheian, that is, evidence and truth, and thence concludeth, God hath given evidence and truth, which is almost infallibility to the high priest, but be it evidence and truth itself that was given, or be it but admonition to the priest to endeavour to inform himself clearly, and give judgment uprightly, yet in that it was given to the high priest, it was given to the civil sovereign. For such next under God was the high priest in the commonwealth of Israel, and is an argument for evidence and truth, that is, for the ecclesiastical supremacy of civil sovereigns over their own subjects, against the pretended power of the Pope. These are all the texts he bringeth for the infallibility of the judgment of the Pope, in point of faith. For the infallibility of his judgment, concerning manners, he bringeth one text, which is that of John, chapter 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth is come, he will lead you into all truth. Where saith he, by all truth is meant, at least, all truth necessary to salvation. But with this mitigation, he attributeth no more infallibility to the Pope than to any man that professeth Christianity, and is not to be damned. For if any man err in any point, wherein not to err is necessary to salvation, it is impossible he should be saved. For that only is necessary to salvation, without which to be saved is impossible. What points these are, I shall declare out of the scripture in the chapter following. In this place I say no more, but that though it were granted the Pope could not possibly teach any error at all, yet doth not this entitle him to any jurisdiction in the dominions of another prince. Unless we shall also say a man is obliged in conscience to set on work upon all occasions the best workman, even then also when he hath formerly promised his work to another. Besides the text, he argueth from reason, thus, If the Pope could err in necessaries, then Christ hath not sufficiently provided for the Church's salvation, because he hath commanded her to follow the Pope's directions. But this reason is invalid, unless he show when and where Christ commanded that, or took at all any notice of a Pope. Nay, granting whatsoever was given to St. Peter was given to the Pope, Yet, seeing there is in the scripture no command to any man to obeyeth him, when his commands are contrary to those of his lawful sovereign. Lastly, it hath not been declared by the church, nor by the pope himself, that he is the civil of all the Christians in the world, and therefore all Christians are not bound to acknowledge his jurisdiction in point of manners. For the civil sovereignty and the supreme judicature in controversies of manners are the same thing, and the makers of civil laws are not only declarers, but also makers of the justice and injustice of actions, there being nothing in men's manners that makes them righteous or unrighteous, but their conformity with the law of the sovereign. And therefore, when the Pope challengeth supremacy in controversies of manners, he teacheth men to disobey the civil sovereign, which is an erroneous doctrine, contrary to the many precepts of our Saviour and his apostles delivered to us in the Scripture. To prove the Pope has power to make laws, he alleges many places, as first Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 12, the man that will do presumptuously, and will not hearken unto the priest that standeth to minister there before the Lord thy God, 
or unto the judge, even that man shall die, and thou shalt put away the evil from Israel. For answer whereunto we are to remember that the high priest, next and immediately under God, was the civil sovereign, and all judges were to be constituted by him, the words alleged sound therefore thus. The man that will presume to disobey the civil sovereign for the time being, or any of his officers, in the execution of their places, that man shall die, etc., which is clearly for the civil sovereign, against the universal power of the Pope. Secondly, he alleges that of Matthew chapter 16, Whatsoever ye shall bind, etc., and interpreteth it for such binding as is attributed to the scribes and Pharisees. They bind heavy burdens, and grievous to be borne, and lay them on, on men's shoulders. Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, by which is meant, he says, making of laws, and concludes thence that the Pope can make laws. But this also maketh only for the legislative power of civil sovereigns, for the scribes and Pharisees sat in Moses' chair. But Moses, next under God, was sovereign of the people of Israel, and therefore our Saviour commanded them to do all that they should say, but not all that they should do, that is, to obey their laws, but not follow their example. The third place is John, chapter 21, verse 16, Feed my sheep, which is not a power to make laws, but a command to teach. Making laws belongs to the Lord of the family, who by his own discretion chooseth his chaplain, as also a schoolmaster to teach his children. The fourth place, John chapter 20, verse 21, is against him. The words are, As my Father sent me, so send I you. But our Saviour was sent to redeem by his death such as should believe, and by his own and his apostles' preaching to prepare them for their entrance into his kingdom, which he himself saith is not of this world, and hath taught us to pray for the coming of it hereafter, though he refused to tell his apostles when it should come. Acts chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 And in which, when it comes, the twelve apostles shall sit on twelve thrones, every one perhaps as high as that of St. Peter, to judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Seeing then God the Father sent not our Saviour to make laws in this present world, we may conclude from the text that neither did our Saviour send St. Peter to make laws here, but to persuade men to expect his second coming with a steadfast faith, and in the meantime, if subjects, to obey their princes, and if princes, both to believe it themselves, and to do their best to make their subjects do the same, which is the office of a bishop. Therefore this place maketh most strongly for the joining of the ecclesiastical supremacy to the civil sovereignty, contrary to that which Cardinal Bellarmine alleges it for. The fifth is Acts, chapter 15, verse 28. It hath seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. And here he notes the word laying of burdens for the legislative power. But who is there that reading this text can say this style of the apostles may not as properly be used in giving counsel as in making laws? The style of a law is, we command. But we think good is the ordinary style of them that but give advice. And they lay a burden that give advice, though it be conditional, that is, 
if they to whom they give it will attain their ends, and such is the burden of abstaining from things strangled, and from blood, not absolute, but in case they will not err. I have shown before, chapter 25, that law is distinguished from counsel in this, that the reason of a law is taken from the design and benefit of him that prescribeth it, but the reason of a counsel from the design and benefit of him to whom the counsel is given. But here the apostles aim only at the benefit of the converted Gentiles, namely their salvation, not at their own benefit. For having done their endeavor, they shall have their reward, whether they be obeyed or not. And therefore the acts of this counsel were not laws, but counsels. The sixth place is that of Romans, chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. Which is meant, he saith, not only of secular, but also of ecclesiastical princes. To which I answer, first, that there are no ecclesiastical princes, but those that are also civil sovereigns, and their principalities exceed not the compass of their civil sovereignty. Without those bounds, though they may be received for doctors, they cannot be acknowledged for princes. For if the apostle had meant we should be subject both to our own princes and also to the pope, he had taught us a doctrine which Christ himself has told us is impossible, namely, to serve two masters. And though the apostles say in another place, I write these things, being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the power which the Lord hath given me, Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10, it is not that he challenged the power either to put to death, imprison, banish, whip, or fine any of them, which are punishments, but only to excommunicate, which, without the civil power, is no more but a leaving of their company, and having no more to do with them than with a heathen man or a publican, which in many occasions might be a greater pain to the excommunicant than to the excommunicate. The seventh place is First Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 21. Shall I come unto you with a rod, or in love, and the spirit of lenity? But here again, it is not the power of a magistrate to punish offenders, that is meant by a rod, but only the power of excommunication, which is not in its own nature a punishment, but only a denouncing of punishment, that Christ shall inflict, when he shall be in possession of his kingdom at the day of judgment. Nor then also shall it be properly a punishment, as upon a subject that has broken the law, but a revenge, as upon an enemy, or a revolter, that denieth the right of our Saviour to the kingdom. And therefore this proveth not the legislative power of any bishop that has not also the civil power. In the eighth place is Timothy, chapter 3, verse 2. A bishop must be the husband but of one wife, vigilant, sober, etc., which he saith was a law. I thought that none could make a law in the church but the monarch of the church. St. Peter, but suppose this precept made by the authority of St. Peter. Yet I see no reason why to call it a law, rather than an advice. St. Timothy was not a subject, but a disciple of St. Paul, nor the flock under the charge of Timothy, his subjects in the kingdom, but his scholars in the school of Christ. If all the precepts he giveth Timothy be laws, why is not this also a law? Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for health's sake. And why are not also the precepts of good physicians so many laws? 
but that it is not the imperative manner of speaking, but an absolute subjection to a person, that maketh his precepts laws. In like manner, the ninth place, First Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses, is a wise precept, but not a law. The tenth place is Luke, chapter 10, verse 16. He that heareth you, heareth me, and he that despiseth you, despiseth me. And there is no doubt, but he that despiseth the counsel of those that are sent by Christ, despiseth the counsel of Christ himself. But who are those now that are sent by Christ, but such as are ordained pastors by lawful authority? And who are lawfully ordained, that are not ordained by the sovereign pastor? And who is ordained by the sovereign pastor in a Christian commonwealth, that is not ordained by the authority of the sovereign thereof? Out of this place, therefore, it followeth, that he which heareth his sovereign, being a Christian, heareth Christ. And he that despiseth the doctrine which his king, being a Christian, authoriseth, despiseth the doctrine of Christ, which is not that which Bellarmine intendeth here to prove, but the contrary. But all this is nothing to a law. Nay more, a Christian king, a pastor, and a teacher of his subjects, makes not thereby his doctrines laws. He cannot oblige men to believe, though as a civil sovereign he may make laws suitable to his doctrine, which may oblige men to certain actions, and sometimes to such as they would not otherwise do, and which he ought not to command. And yet, when they are commanded, they are laws, and the external actions done in obedience to them, without the inward approbation, are the actions of the sovereign, and not of the subject, which is in that case but as an instrument, without any motion of his own at all, because God hath commanded to obey them. The eleventh is every place where the apostle, for counsel, putteth some word by which men use to signify command, or calleth the following of his counsel by the name of obedience. And therefore there are alleged out of First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, I commend you for keeping my precepts, as I delivered them to you. The Greek is, I commend you for keeping those things I delivered to you, as I delivered them, which is far from signifying that they were laws, or anything else but good counsel. And that of First Thessalonians 4, verse 2, You know what commandments we gave you, where the Greek word is paraglius edokamen, equivalent to peridokamen what we delivered to you, as in the place next before alleged, which does not prove the traditions of the apostles to be any more than counsels, though as is said in the eighth verse, he that despiseth them despiseth not man, but God. For our Saviour himself came not to judge, that is, to be king of this world, but to sacrifice himself for sinners, and to leave doctors in his church, to lead, not to drive men to Christ, who never accepteth forced actions, which is all the law produceth, but the inward conversion of the heart, which is not the work of laws, but of counsel and doctrine. And that of Second Thessalonians 3, verse 14, If any man obey not our words by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Wherefrom the word obey, he would infer that this epistle was a law to the Thessalonians, 
the epistles of the emperors were indeed laws. If, therefore, the epistle of St. Paul were also a law, they were to obey two masters, but the word obey, as it is in the Greek, upakue, signifieth hearkening to, or putting in practice, not only that which is commanded by him that has right to punish, but also that which is delivered in a way of counsel, for our good. And therefore St. Paul does not bid kill him that disobeys, nor beat, nor imprison, nor immerse him, which legislators may all do, but avoid his company, that he may be ashamed, whereby it is evident it was not the empire of an apostle, but his reputation among the faithful, which the Christians stood in awe of. The last place is that of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders, and submit yourselves to them, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account. And here also is intended by obedience a following of their counsel, for the reason of our obedience is not drawn from the will and command of our pastors, but from our own benefit, as being the salvation of our souls they watch for, and not for the exaltation of their own power and authority. If it were meant here that all they teach were laws, then not only the Pope, but every pastor in his parish should have legislative power. Again, they that are bound to obey their pastors have no power to examine their commands. What then shall we say to St. John, who bids us not to believe every spirit, but to try spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world? First John chapter 4, verse 1 It is therefore manifest that we may dispute the doctrine of our pastors, but no man can dispute a law. The commands of a civil sovereign are on all sides granted to be laws. If any else can make a law besides himself, all commonwealth, and consequently all peace and justice, must cease, which is contrary to all laws, both divine and human. Nothing, therefore, can be drawn from these or any other places of Scripture to prove the decrees of the Pope, where he has not also the civil sovereignty to be laws. The last point he would prove is this, that our Saviour Christ has committed ecclesiastical jurisdiction immediately to none but the Pope, wherein he handleth not the question of supremacy between the Pope and Christian kings, but between the Pope and other bishops. And first, he says, it is agreed that the jurisdiction of bishops is at least in the general de jure divino, that is, in the right of God, for which he alleges St. Paul, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11, where he says that Christ, after his ascension into heaven, gave gifts to men, some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors, and some teachers, and thence infers they have indeed their jurisdiction in God's right, but will not grant they have it immediately from God, but derived through the Pope. But if a man may be said to have his jurisdiction de jure divino, and yet not immediately, what lawful jurisdiction, though but civil, is there in a Christian commonwealth that is not also de jure divino? For Christian kings have their civil power from God immediately, and the magistrates under him exercise their several charges in virtue of his commission, wherein that which they do is no less de jure divino mediato than that which the bishops do in virtue of the Pope's ordination. All lawful power is of God, immediately in the supreme governor, and immediately in those that have authority under him so that either he must grant every constable in the state to hold his office in the right of God, or he must not hold that any bishop holds his so, besides the Pope himself. End of chapter 42, part 5 Recording by Geoffrey Edwards